Welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. In this episode, still not sold on rubrics? Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. In this episode, I want to start and go way back when I first started teaching to the most beneficial book I probably read for the first couple of years, The Introduction to Rubrics. And Dave is joining me today, by the way, again, in our second episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Dave, thanks for being here. Apparently, I did okay on the first episode. I've been invited back for a second. In case you didn't listen to the first one, spoiler alert, he's my husband. I'm glad to be your husband, even more so than I'm glad to be on this show. (laughs) So when I first started teaching in higher ed, I was, I actually don't remember, it might have been my second year or so, was introduced to the idea behind rubrics and found, because whenever I have trouble with how do you do something, what's the best way to do it, I, I often go to books. You do. And you were so excited about this rubric thing with this book forever and ever and ever. And I was like, what on earth is this rubric thing about? Because you kept telling me about rubrics and rubrics this and rubrics that. And I was like, what on earth is even a rubric? (laughs) What's a rubric? What is it? So the, the book is Introduction to Rubrics and the subtitle is great. An assessment tool to save time grading. By the way, that's going to be a key point for anyone listening that would like to save time and is not using rubrics right now. Convey effective feedback and promote student learning. And there's a link, by the way, if you'd like to check this book out on Amazon, there is a link on the the show notes that's at teachinginhighered.com slash two. So feel free to go there to comment on this episode and to have a link over to that book. So I read it and it's a wonderful thing. It's actually been republished since I read it. This was the early 2000s that the first publication came out, but I saw that they have redone it again in the last couple of years. So probably worth me even getting the latest copy because it was really great. And so my first introduction to rubrics were ones that were done really well. And I spent a lot of time doing them and really thinking about them. But what I'm seeing now, unfortunately, is the landscape has changed to where so many institutions, not just at the higher ed level, but also high school and even below that are using rubrics a lot, but a lot of really bad rubrics and a lot of rubrics that are not thought out well. And so our students are sometimes getting accustomed to the fact that they're not going to give them a good idea of what the expectations are and that they're not going to give them feedback. And then a lot of times our faculty aren't really taken them very seriously either. And I know for myself, I have this debate on somewhat of a regular basis with the colleagues that I work with regularly. And some of them really have a lot of resistance to them. I would actually say the majority of them have a resistance to using rubrics. And the first reason for resistance tends to be what I call the Supreme Court version of it. And it's, well, I don't want to tell them what it is I'm looking for. I'll know it when I see it. And I don't know if you remember that, Dave, that was back in the Supreme Court talking about pornography. I remember. What's considered pornography. And one of the justices was a 
Oh, I don't it's, remember that might have part. Been Scalia. <laughs> I'll know it. No, when it's I not Kennedy. It was not, no, it's someone who's not on the court anymore. Um, I don't. I don't remember the details, but uh, but I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> I have a link, by the way, to the actual a law journal that goes through that case if anyone's interested in reading more about it. It was actually an interesting article that I found. So, But it's a great analogy for how a lot of times grading happens in in higher ed with, yeah. you know, that that kind of a philosophy of like, okay, well, you know, I'll know what's right when I read the paper. And I just think that is so unfair to our students. And yes, if you're early in your teaching, it might take you a while to be able to exercise enough those communication abilities for expectations, but it should be one of those get a rubric out there and then refine it over time. It will really help you. So rubric essentially, by the way, rubric's going to, to articulate what is expected out of an assignment. So a rubric is is going to have different degrees of quality. If if it's just one of those that says you need to have an introduction and a conclusion, you need to be in APA format, you need to have five pages or, or what have you. That's not a rubric, that's a checklist. If it's a binary thing, that's a checklist. That is that is one way of communicating expectations, but not as refined as a rubric. So a rubric's going to say, it could be three different definitions of quality, could be four, could be five. And that's a lot of thinking between what would the lower end of the quality spectrum look like all the way up to the highest end. It does take an enormous amount of time to create high quality ones. Once you've created high quality ones, it seriously reduces the time you have to spend articulating an assignment and then also giving your feedback because it's all there and pre-thought out for you. And and I should mention I have come full circle on this. So you introduced me to rubrics. I didn't even know what they were. And then you explained. I was like, oh, yeah, I think I've seen something like that before. And now I teach classes at the master's level. And so when I started designing classes and syllabi, I incorporated rubrics in there and now have seen how that is really helpful in saving time and being much more effective in my grading and also communicating to students exactly what it is that I'm looking for as far as standards. But you're right. It takes a, it does take time to do it well on the front end. And I think that's probably a stopping point for a lot of faculty is just not being uh, either willing to put in that effort and time or not knowing what to, where to really start with building a rubric. And that's, that's, that's hard. The second objection that I hear the most often is people that say, well, there's so many people when I teach in business and management. And so there's so many people when they go out into the business world who aren't going to communicate their expectations to them, they have to get used to it. They have to get used to not knowing what the manager's looking for and, and just working under those conditions. And I think that's like you being a, a psychologist, a psychology professor and teaching your marriage family class and saying, well, there's so many bad marriages out there. They end in divorce, terrible communication. So you really need to not be a good communicator as a as Or a don't therapist. bother getting to be a good communicator because it's not going to do you any good anyway. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think that's quite not what our students need more from us than that. They need to have us, yes, communicating perhaps better 
than their managers one day will to help build their skills in these key areas. And and so part of that, our, I, I think our role is really being good at communicating expectations and not having there be so many surprises around the grading process. I see Rubik's as a teach, teaching instrument. So it helps them know what good looks like on a particular assignment around a certain learning outcome. And then it helps them. So it helps them know what to aim for and then to have good feedback when they hit the mark or when they don't. So let's dive in, Dave, to looking at a framework around rubrics. And I'm going to actually use a framework work from a guy named Harold Jarkey who is an expert in personal knowledge management. And we'll be talking about personal knowledge management down the line in future episodes. But one of the things he describes is a way of cultivating knowledge. So I'm going to use his way of cultivating knowledge specifically now around rubrics. So he says we seek knowledge, we make sense of knowledge, and then we share that knowledge. So I'm going to talk about how do you seek out different rubrics how do you make sense of them and really have them make the biggest impact to you? And then how I would encourage people to share their rubrics. So to start out with, as far as seeking, I did mention it's really tough to make an effective rubric, but the good news is there are so many fabulous ones already out there. I can't, I can't even fathom that that so many people are so gifted at this and then so willing to share what they've come up with as well. So a couple of them that are in the show notes that you should go over and check out are the AACU value rubrics. And these are from the, oh, I'm forgetting the acronym AACU. It's the academics. It's, it's like the representation of all professors in America. He's got it there. Association of American Colleges and Universities. I really should have known that one. I panicked under the pressure. (laughs) And the value rubrics help you articulate around a lot of what would be the general education type of overarching learning outcomes for a college degree. But it wouldn't even matter if you're teaching in a specific type of discipline, you'll likely find something there that you can make use of. And the nice thing is you can adapt any of their rubrics. So it's a good starting place around some key skills. For example, writing skills, Mm. oral presentation skills, et cetera, et cetera. So some really broad areas, and then you can take them and make them specific to your given assignment and the skills you're trying to build and the knowledge. And there are some elements of rubrics that do stay similar in a lot of, I mean, you think of like writing a paper or something. There are Mm -hmm. some rubric elements that I've used in every rubric. And I know for me, one of the things that was really helpful as I finally learned what a rubric was and then like, oh, this would actually be helpful when I do some teaching. I looking at other rubrics was helpful as a starting point of thinking, okay, what would I want to include? What would I not include? And then I looked at a bunch of yours, which was a great starting point. I was like, oh, this is good. Oh, I think I want to tweak that for my class because I you know, am expecting a slightly different standard in this particular area. So seeing examples that are good ones to start off with is a really good place to start. So you'll know when you see it. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, there are tons of bad I, rubrics out there too. So I'd encourage you to use the show notes links because a lot of these are good and they're good starting places. So at least you know what great looks like when it comes to a rubric. I know what great looks like. That's why I married you. Oh, there you go. There you go. Oh, so sweet. So Kathy Schrock's Guide to Everything is a really amazing resource. Kathy Schrock is 
tends to provide more resources toward high school type of teachers, but I have found her stuff is easily adaptable to higher ed. She's absolutely fantastic. And she has a whole section on rubrics. And if you go up there, you'll, your mind will just be blown how, what are rubrics, lots of different definitions, examples of rubrics, links to tools to help you create your own rubrics. She's got it all up there. So that's a wonderful resource for you to check out. And since it is the guide to everything, it covers all educational levels. There you go. Yeah. There you go. And lastly, on the seek part, Wiggins, who I know Wiggins as the author of a book called Backwards Design. And he coined that phrase thinking about when we design a course, we think about the end and we work backwards from there. That's hence the the term backwards design. So he is a, is a phenomenal blogger and has really some tremendous things to say about rubrics. And as I was going back and rereading, he's got a cup, a whole series on rubrics thinking about just how we really do do a disservice to our students when we don't communicate well, when we don't really think about communicating our expectations. And and to him, the importance of delineating between different standards of qualities is something he really emphasizes. So he has in his second post in his series where he has some ability for us to go out and find, seek out different sources for rubrics. Next up, we have sense. So if you go out and you find a bunch of rubrics, my guess is if you're anything like me, you're not going to find the exact rubric that you're looking for at the very moment you go down, sit down to write it. You might just be out there browsing, you find one, but you don't need it now, but you just want to hang on to it. So it's the idea of making sense of the tools that we're finding. And so a lot of making sense is saving things and creating them in a system that you'll be able to find them later on. So for me, I save a lot of web links, in this case, rubrics, using a bookmarking service called Delicious. Delicious, like the food is delicious, only in this case, the rubrics are delicious. So you go to delicious.com and you can create yourself an account there and install a button in your toolbar so that when you're on a site and you want to save something like a rubric, you just click on that button and type in some tags. And so I have for anyone who visits the show notes for this episode, I have my delicious bookmarks for rubrics and I've saved at least a hundred of them over time. And they're all searchable too. So you can go to that link for my bookmarks for rubrics. And then within those bookmarks, you can even do a more refined search for what it is you're looking for. So I'd encourage you to check that out. I love these links sharing services because you can give as much access or not to to other people. So you, for example, I think keep all of yours public. And so people can go online and see all the things you've saved in your bookmarks and access it. That's that's really cool. I use a similar service called Pinboard. One of the ways I use it, not specific to rubrics, although I should be saving rubrics information too, but is anytime there's two or three classes I teach regularly at, um, at a university. And so I take the class code and anytime I find an article that I think would be relevant to that class, I just tag it with that class code. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm then... Next time I'm teaching that class, I pull up the list of all the articles I found that, you know, maybe three months ago I saw somewhere, but I'm never going to remember again. But then, you know, I've got a whole list by the time the class goes next time and relevant, uh, you know, timely things that are going on in news and media and online that are relevant to that class's conversation 
learning objectives. And so that's a really helpful thing to do. And then you can get even more refined with your tagging because a link could have more than one tag on it. So Dave could have it for one of his classes. He could have that tag for his specific class number and then also tag it as a rubric. So if you were thinking, oh, this is a perfect example of a rubric I could modify for X class, you could even make your time that much less in the future when you actually go about trying to find rubrics for that class. Most of the things I find online have four or five tags. I'll tag the topics because most of the work I do in the world is not teaching in higher ed. It's business and training and um, you know producing content. So it's it's you know I'm looking for things for lots of different resources. So I use as many tags as I think are relevant for that mm-hmm. particular media item I found. So when it comes to rubrics, we want to be able to use them well. So, because that's the big thing is saving time. Once they're produced, then you go about being able to give feedback that's actually meaningful back to your students, but a lot faster too, because we don't have to say the same thing over and over again. And so the way I have found actually works for me for creating rubrics is to create them within Evernote. Evernote is a online cloud-based notebook service, meaning I can get it on my phone, on my iPad, on my computer, wherever I am, I can access it. And so I'll start there within a note. You can have a table in there. So I'll just go and have a table that has maybe four columns. The first column might be the attribute being described, such as formatting. And then the next column over would be excellent and then mediocre and then not so mediocre. <laughs> and and my descriptors go in there. I like using Evernote. The formatting isn't perfect when I'm in there, but if you ever do some serious writing, it's good to get your ideas out and not worry about formatting. So it's real simple. It's not perfect. But then I can copy and paste it into Word and then adjust the size of my columns and actually make it look really good. And so then I tend to take them over to Word And then I save them as PDFs for students to be able to view them in advance. I don't save them as Word. I save them as PDF for students, but I save that Word file. And then later on, when I go to actually provide students feedback to the students, I oftentimes will in Microsoft Word highlight in yellow whatever they actually scored and then save that as a PDF. And some of the grading systems now, like Turnitin, for example, actually has support for rubrics. Mm-hmm. So you can, I've done this with classes I've taught recently is I have have produced the rubric and then on turn it in, I'll go ahead and copy and paste, you know, the each section of the rubric in there and turn it in will even match it to points and all of that. So you can set it up once. And then every time I teach that class then, I mean, I'm always making small changes to the rubrics, but I'm not making major changes. So I can just go in, set it up. And then right away, you can just click on how, people, you know, where people fall on each of the rubrics and it, it calculates the grade automatically and you can give audio feedback. And it's just amazing what you can do. Turnitin has support for rubrics. Blackboard has support for rubrics. Moodle has support for rubrics. So if you use a learning management system at your institution, it's pretty likely that it has support for rubrics. And as Dave said, that makes it so easy to be able to just go in, click, 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 and it does all the math for you. So if you've said formatting is worth X percent of the grade, and this is weighted according to however many points, and there's lots of different ways you can work out the math, but you work out the math in advance, and then it does all the mathematical tabulations for you. 
And, and, you know, I think that one of the objections probably faculty have to doing something like this, like, oh, it's way too automated. I want my grading to be more personalized in my feedback. For me, I find the exact opposite. By, by automating some of that part, not automating, but making it more structured, it allows me then to really put the effort into grading into the personal feedback. Because I always, I always do it virtually, and I leave a three-minute audio comment on almost everything I grade. And so... Like, you know, how did you score on the grammar section? I don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that because I indicate that on the rubric. And then I can really have a conversation with that person about what I really thought about their assignment beyond just what's on the rubric. And so that I find really opens up a lot of doors to invest more time into making it personal. And people really like that. Yeah. And I've had so many comments from undergraduates all the way up to the doctoral level who say, being able to hear your voice made such a difference to me in receiving that feedback and it being that much more valuable to me. And so that's really an interesting, to me, commonality they all seem to have just that Sometimes, I mean, anything, we've all gotten the email that we think was intended one way and it turns out they didn't mean that at all. And so just being able to hear our voice, even if it's some tough feedback, I think really helps the communication transfer in the caring way with which we actually mean it. We really do want to give you feedback on your work and 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 how to make it better in the future. So I think that's a, a helpful thing. Also, also probably a whole nother show, but it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing to me how often people tell me that they've never had it a faculty member, people at the master's level, no one's ever recorded an audio or anything like that. And with today's technology, it's so simple to do. A colleague of mine used a tool called iAnnotate, which is an iPad app. And actually, Dave, would you look up to see if it also is on another platform while I talk about it? So it gives you the ability to produce all sorts of feedback, be it highlight, handwritten notes on their page of the students, and also a lot of audio feedback as well. It says get it on Google Play, which makes me think it probably has Android support, but I don't yeah. uh, I don't know the Google system well yes, enough to know. That is correct. Cool. So at any rate, we are getting a little bit off topic, but in terms of just the feedback, I do think that Dave's right. There can be that objective objection of, oh, it's so impersonal, but really it frees up without saying the same thing over and over again to actually provide the richness of your feedback. And the one other thing that I started doing is using a screen, a a tool called tapes that lets you record what's happening on your screen, but there's a lot of them out there. So there's, there is even Snagit is one that I've used for some years where you just click and drag across part of your screen and then are able to create a little movie of what's there. So I'll do that with the rubric. I'll click and drag over the rubric after I've scored it and talk through it with the student. And I was just grading some infographics with my doctoral students and I could bring up their infographic and talk through it with them on the screen and then bring up the rubric and show them where I highlighted and why. So again, with that richness of feedback, again, tapes is not the only application that will do that for you, but that's just one that will allow you to do simple screencasting, capture your audio and whatever's happening on your screen. It's almost like a great adult version of show and tell. And then we can really, again, provide that much better feedback for students. And then the last piece is to share 
just like I mentioned, so many people share their rubrics and I would encourage you to do so. I'd encourage you to be blogging about them, to tweet about them, and to really be as generous with the community of people out there in higher ed as people have already been before you started creating rubrics. And to that end, I plan on doing that and be sh- being sharing the rubrics I come up with for my various classes on the teaching and higher ed blog. So I hope mm. that you'll join us over there. I should give you some of mine to uh, share with people too, either on the links here or on the blog. That'd be Sounds cool. great. And now is the part in the show where we recommend an ed tech tool. And I was coming downstairs. I had already texted Dave saying, Hey, are you ready to record? And he said, yeah. And the name of the company changed. So I caught it just in time. So it used to be called Remind 101 and it is now called Remind, remind remind.com. This is a wonderful service that originally looks like it was designed more for the elementary grades because it involves communication with not just students, but really with parents. But it's a communication tool that allows you to send out text messages to remind people about stuff to remind students and again, to communicate with parents, that kind of thing. And it's evolved over time and really become so integrated with my teaching. So what happens is I go up there and I have an account on remind.com and I create a class. Let's say it's introduction to business and I've got that class up there. Then when my students come the first day of class, I have a little code that they just text to. That's all they have to do with their phones is just text to this code And then it texts them back, asks for their name. And I don't ever see their cell phone number. They don't ever see my cell phone number. But throughout the semester, I can send using the app or on the web, it's either one I want to, a quick reminder to any of my classes with just a couple of taps on my iPhone or a couple clicks of my mouse on my browser. And they just started adding support for pictures, which just really expands the possibilities there even more, whether we just want to capture a memory from the class or something on the whiteboard or a PowerPoint, or even a handout could be sent that way as well. So that's remind.com would encourage everyone to check it out. And, and it's just an easy way to communicate with students without them having your cell phone number. I am looking forward to trying that in a future class. I've been putting off implementing that, uh, but it, it just sounds so cool and gives people so many options to be able to connect and get class announcements out. So, uh, do, do you would you like me to share one? Yes. Okay. So my uh, my resource. I'm actually going to go back to tapes mm-hmm. because uh, I I think you captured a, a part of what tapes is great for. What, what is really cool about it? There's a lot of apps that do screen sharing, screencasting stuff. Is I think it's Mac only, by the way. So um, mm-hmm. for those this of you is who two are, for two now yeah, for you. <laughs> two for two. But um, it puts a little thing in your menu bar on a Mac. You click on it, it literally starts recording your screen. You just select the part you want. And as soon as you're done, it gives you a link and you email the link. That's it. It does all of the uploading the files. They toast it on their own service. You don't have to upload something to YouTube or a server somewhere. It is really simple to use. That's why it's such a powerful tool. And it's great if you need to show someone how to do something. So I definitely recommend it for that. Yeah, a student could just email you and say, how do I do this? And you, instead of trying to write it all up, you just show them. And it copies it to your clipboard and off you go. You're off and running. Speaking of off and running, we have a date with some kids. Yes, uh, we do. In a little bit here. So it's time for us to in get off and running. In one minute. Exactly one minute. Good <laughs> Nothing timing, like huh? going right up to the wire. Thanks so much for listening today to the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. I am Bonnie. And I'm Dave. And, and 
You can find us on teachinginhighered.com slash two, right? For the notes yeah, for this second episode. One. Yeah. We hope you'll go up there and comment. Let us know what questions you have or what you'd like to contribute to the community. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.